I hope you'll take your Bibles and turn to Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. And this will be the end of my focus on these two verses. We've been with them for six weeks. And next Sunday we will move on to verse 18 and linger there for a week. But these verses are the theme of the epistle, and so we will never really leave them. We'll come back to them again and again and again because they are Romans in summary. Now, before I read them, I want to put them in a bigger, wider context today. There are only two great concerns in the world. One is the concern that God be properly displayed in the universe. And the other is the concern that you and I find everlasting joy in Him. These are the two great concerns of the universe. The display of the glory of God and everlasting contentment in Him. Now, what I saw in meditating afresh this week on these verses is that verse 16 addresses the second of those big concerns, and verse 17 addresses the first of those big concerns. Verse 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation. And that's what we want. Salvation means escape from wrath and judgment and the arrival in our lives of everlasting joy in the presence of Almighty God forever and ever and ever. We want that. That is one of the great concerns of the world. Can I live forever in heaven and happiness instead of in hell and misery? That is a huge concern. And the other one, verse 17 says, In it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written the righteous man shall live by faith. And so you see that central affirmation, something about God is revealed in the gospel. This is a God display. This is about God. So verse 16 is all about salvation by faith. And verse 17 is all about its foundation, a demonstration of something about God. So these are the big issues in the world. You might think that the scandal of the White House is a big issue. Henry VIII makes Bill Clinton look like a Puritan. And he's off the screen. A blip. Who remembers Henry VIII? Who cares about Henry VIII? Genghis Khan makes the bombings of the embassies and the reprisals look like a recess tussle. Whole peoples wiped off the scene in Central Asia. And who in this room can tell me what century Genghis Khan lived in? 
let alone anything about his life. He does not matter. He is a goner. These are not the big issues. Those are not the big people. The big issues are the display of God and what becomes of us in eternity. That's the big issue in life. Whether anybody in the world recognizes it or not, once they turn off their television and be still and know that He is God, it will settle in. My God, I have devoted my life to many small things. Open my heart to the big issues in the world. So this text is worthy of six weeks. And we want to look at it again this morning. The main point that I have been trying to develop is this. These two verses are not about how you become a believer, but how you get saved as a believer. That's been my thesis because I think that's the point of verse 16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all those who, and then this present tense, continuous action, Greek word, believe, is so crucial. All those who go on believing. This verse is about how believers escape the wrath of God. The same present tense you can see there in verse 17. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Because in it the the righteousness of God is being revealed is the right nuance to that verse. It might help us to linger here for a minute on this future idea of salvation because there is a a reality of present and past salvation that we cherish. But in the book of Romans, this future idea of being saved is central. So go with me, if you would, to chapter 5, verse 9. The reason I want you to focus on on chapter 5, verse 9, is because not only do we see here the futurity of salvation, but we see the very structure of verses 16 and 17. Verse 9 of chapter 5 is a restatement of the thesis of the letter found in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. Let me read it to you. Verse 9. Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved. Notice, future tense. We shall be saved from the wrath of God. That's the salvation of 116. Now, stick with me at verse 9 for just a minute. I want you to see something. Because if you get this... You will have Romans, and then all your reading in Romans will fit into this thesis. Verse 9 of chapter 5 is verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 in flip-flopped order. So let me flip-flop the two halves of verse 9, read it slowly, and you think about verses 16 and 17, and then I'll compare them for you. 
Okay, flip-flopping the order of verse 9 goes like this. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through Christ because we have been justified by His blood. That's exactly what verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 says. Go back with me and see if you see it. Verse 16 says, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That's unto the escape of the wrath of God. Saved from the wrath of God for all who believe. And then comes the foundation. Because in it, a righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And we've spent weeks trying to defend the interpretation that the revelation of the righteousness of God there is the gift of righteousness to sinners to be received by faith, which chapter 5 verse 9 calls justification. I wonder if you've got it. I wonder if you see it. Paul means for you to understand this letter. He does not mean for you to come and get titillated by my language week in and week out. He means for the fabric of your brain to be woven through with the fabric of the thinking of this letter. There's a logic. I remember when I went to seminary in 1968, my whole head blew open at the top because I was simply shown that the apostles argue instead of stringing pearls together called verses. I didn't get it for 25 years or 22 years. I treated the Bible as pearls. Here's a verse pearl. Here's a verse pearl. You need a pearl today? Need a bite today? Eat it. The Bible, especially Romans, not every book is the same. Don't mean to smooth it all out and say there are no stories. But you take a book like Romans. I want to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome because... I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. Because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Because righteousness and wrath are being poured out from God. He means for you to get that. Please don't be passive listeners. Please don't take my word for it. Please don't just come for a little nugget on Sunday morning. Please turn on your God-given brain and get into Romans. So I'm going to say it again. Chapter 5, verse 9, in reverse order, says, you're going to be saved in the future from the wrath of God by Christ. Because of, no, because, come down under it, because you have been justified by His blood. Now go to 16 and 17. And 16 says, The gospel is the power of God unto that salvation for everybody who believes. And then come under it and put this massive foundation of the righteousness of God or the justification. Put it underneath and it says, Because in this gospel there is manifested day in, day out, week in, week out, to be received by faith, building faith, there is a righteousness given to you that you cannot have on your own and you stand on that and live by that. Now, 
Here we are, last sermon on these verses, at the quotation from Habakkuk 2.4 at the end of verse 17. And what I just said, I believe, is why he quoted this verse. Let's read it in context. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith to faith. So the righteousness of God as a gift to be received by faith. This is called justification. And now he quotes Habakkuk 2.4. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now I want you to see the point of this quote, its meaning and its relevance in these two verses. So you don't need to go back with me to Habakkuk, but I'm going to linger on Habakkuk for a minute. I love the, I love the book of Habakkuk. It has a little place in my marriage that is very special because when you come to the end of this devastating story of the wrath of God poured out on the nations and upon Judea, and it looks like there's no hope for anybody, you have these unbelievably magnificent words about though there be no sheep in the stall and though there be no grapes on the vine and though there be no corn in the field. In other words, though I be absolutely destitute, nevertheless, I will rejoice in my God. We read that at our wedding. That's why it's special for us. We didn't expect an easy life. We didn't expect an easy marriage. We were very aware of how different we are. And it hasn't been easy. And child rearing is not easy. And cancer is not easy, which one of these days or something like it will take one of us. And at, at our funeral, whoever goes first will hear it again. Though there be nothing but God, we will rejoice. So I love this book. And so I have lingered long over it this week, trying to understand this verse in the context of Habakkuk. Now, here's the context. God is very angry at the nations, and he's angry at Judea, Judah, the, the tribes that are left after the devastation of Assyria has taken the northern tribes away. And in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, he declares what's coming. Be astonished, wonder, because I am doing nothing in your days. I mean, I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. This is Babylon. That fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. Now that raises a huge problem for the listeners to this prophet Habakkuk in Judah. What would you say if you heard he's releasing the Chaldeans to do his judgment on the earth, including his own people? What would you say to this prophet? What I would say is, is there any way to escape the wrath of God? That's what I would say. And the answer comes in verse 4 of chapter 2, which is the one that Paul quotes. He says, 
Behold, as for the proud, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live. That is, will gain his life, be saved from the wrath of God by his faith. Now, there are two ways that this quote is relevant for this context in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Let's take them one at a time. Number one, it's relevant because it says, rescue from the judgment of God depends on faith. It's by faith, he says, that you're going to gain your life. It's by faith that you're not going to be swept away in the judgment utterly by these Babylonians. It's by faith that you will live. And so the word live, you see that at the end of verse 17 now, the righteous will live by faith corresponds to salvation in verse 16. If you don't get that connection, you'll probably make hash out of these verses. Verse 16 says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, unto life, unto escape from wrath. And then at the end of verse 17, he brings in a supporting Old Testament text that says, when the Chaldeans are coming and God is angry and you ask, where can there be rescue? Where can I gain my life? Where can there be salvation? The answer is, by faith. And so the text supports faith as the way to be saved. That's the first connection between 17 and 16 and the quotation of this verse. Here's the second connection. This verse, Habakkuk 2.4, quoted at the end there, verse 17, says, it was a righteous person Underline righteous. Now, we're going to deal with this one. It was a righteous person who gains his life by faith. The righteous. The person who is righteous will believe and therefore live. Hmm. Now, we must be very careful here. I do not want to read in to Habakkuk what is taught by Paul just because it's taught by Paul and may not be there in Habakkuk. So as I ponder this, I do not think Habakkuk in verse 4 of chapter 2 is explicitly teaching that the person is righteous by faith. I don't think the RSV got the word order right but anyway, but that's another issue. I don't think he's teaching that. But Paul is teaching that. The gift of righteousness in verse 17 is justification and it is revealed to faith. So justification by faith, having a right standing, being righteous before God by faith is what verse 17 is teaching. So in bringing verse 4 of Habakkuk 2 under to support it, is he doing something illegitimate with the Old Testament? That's, that's what a lot of people wrestle with. Now here's where it really pays off to take 
hours to meditate on the Old Testament context of Paul's use of it. How quick contemporary scholars are to say Paul plays fast and loose with the Old Testament. He makes it mean all kinds of crazy things it never meant and uses it to support his purposes that it never meant to support. Well, I've been working at this for about 30 years now and frankly, I trust Paul more than any scholar I have ever met. He has won my confidence over and over and over again in these things. Now here, just listen carefully to how I think Paul read Habakkuk. In chapter 1, verse 13, there is a very famous verse about the holiness and the righteousness of God. I learned it when I was a boy as part of the way to share the gospel with my friends. Because you've got to have God being holy and rejecting sin and thus a gulf between sinner and God in order to share the gospel, right? You can't draw a little cross across the chasm until you got a chasm. So this verse is a chasm-creating verse. I'll read it to you. Habakkuk 1.13 God's eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot, you God, cannot look on wickedness with favor. So there's this huge problem between a holy God and a sinful man because he can't even look upon a sinner with favor. Now you think, okay, you get to chapter 2, verse 4, and you've got people crying out for favor who are sinners. Save me! Don't damn me. And the answer comes, the righteous will live, be saved, be favored by faith. Hmm. Does it, does it take a rocket scientist or a fancy exegete to see that if there is any hope for this sinner crying out for rescue to that holy God who can't even look at him with favor because of his sin. Does it take any great intelligence to realize that when God says, the way you will be rescued from me is faith. To realize that the word righteousness there must be something like, I call you righteous. You are righteous because I count this faith as righteousness. Which is what he said about Abraham. This is not New Testament stuff. This is Genesis 15, 6. He reckons Abraham's faith as righteousness. So in the wider context of the book of Habakkuk, I do believe that when Paul quoted this verse as a support for the revelation of the righteousness of God as a gift to unworthy sinners to be received by faith, he wasn't doing anything out of line with Habakkuk. He was giving a very profound, deep, careful exposition of Habakkuk and using it as a support for 
His glorious gospel teaching that if we're going to escape the wrath of God through the gospel, the gospel has to reveal to us a righteousness which is not our own from God to be received not by works of the law, but by faith. And that's exactly what he does. Which brings us now, finally, to one phrase. From faith to faith. I promised you last week that we would tackle that phrase because right here now, as we move to a close, this is where you, in this room, listening to what I'm saying, can either be connected with this reality of the righteousness of God offered to you freely to create a right standing, sinners though we be, or not. And it's all in the phrase... From faith to faith. So let's read it in context now and then I'll show you what I think it means and why. In it, that is in the gospel, and this gospel has this believer-saving power, because in it, righteousness, God's righteousness, is revealed in that gospel. As a gift. From faith to faith. As it is written. Righteous people trust God and so have their lives. What does from faith to faith mean? There are two keys to understanding this phrase. The parallel... Found in 2 Corinthians, there's only one exact parallel to this verse in all the Bible. I mean, in all the New Testament. There are two more in the Old Testament. In Psalm, see if I wrote it down here somewhere, 84.7 and Jeremiah 9.3. But I'm not going to look at those. You can look at them if you want to. So I would like you to go with me to the parallel. This is the first key that unlocks the meaning of this phrase. 2 Corinthians 2.15 and 16. Now, the context here in 2 Corinthians is that Paul is thinking of his ministry, his word, his suffering as a fragrance. So get the analogy. The the metaphor is one of aroma. Aroma to God before two kinds of people. The two kinds of people are those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Note the process. And the aroma comes to one and stinks. And the aroma comes to the other and is so sweet, it carries to life. So let me read it for you. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. We are a fragrance to Christ. We are a fragrance of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Now verse 16. To the one, an aroma, now here's the phrase which is structurally identical to the phrase from faith to faith. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life 
to life. So I think if I could find out what that meant, I would perhaps have a key or a clue to what that very similar phrase means in Romans 1.17. And nowhere else does it occur in the New Testament. And here's what I think these words mean. When the gospel and the example of a suffering apostle meet with spiritual death and resistance... It confirms death and leads to death. When it meets spiritual death, it leads to eternal death. And on the positive side, when the gospel meets Holy Spirit wrought receptivity and quickening and life receptivity, it moves in and leads to eternal life. The gospel lands on life and leads to life. It is received by life and it preserves life. And brings them through judgment. Okay, let's go back to verse 17 and see whether this helps us. When the revelation of God and His righteousness meets with faith, it leads to future faith. That's what I think the text means. When the gospel is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, and in it the righteousness of God begins to shine forth, faith is the agency by which a window is opened in the heart and the revelation, the light of righteousness given to faith comes in. And light sheds abroad in the heart. And when it does, the believer stands on it. And then day after day, week after week, year after year, he is preserved in that faith by that revealed righteousness. That's my first argument. The parallel in 2 Corinthians 2.15 opens a window on the fact that when the gospel meets with faith as the receiving, welcoming act of the heart, it comes in with power, as verse 16 says, and brings that believer to glory by over and over again working more and more faith. Now here's my second reason for believing that's what it means. Namely, it fits the context so amazingly perfectly. Verse 16, remember this now. Verse 16 says that the gospel is the power of God to save unto salvation for all those or everyone who goes on believing. I wonder how many of you could finish the sermon right now. You get it? Who go on believing. Persevering in faith is the way to be saved. Let me read that for you from another text. Unless you think it's not here. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2 go like this. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast 
the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Do you hear what that says? That says you will be saved by the gospel if you hold it fast, lest you believe in vain, meaning the evidence of vain faith, an apparent signing of a card or praying of a prayer or walking an aisle and flourishing for a few weeks or months as though you were a believer and then throwing it all away. The evidence that that was vain faith is that you throw it all away. Because if you hold fast the word to the end, your faith is not vain but real. And that is how you are saved. Now come back to verse 16 with that. The gospel is the power of God to save those who go on believing. How? Because in it, that believer fighting that fight of faith day in and day out sees something revealed. What? A gift of righteousness. Received how? By faith. Working how? Unto faith. The gospel saves believers because the gospel keeps believers believing. That's my summary of these verses. The gospel saves believers because when that first act of faith welcomes it, it, it now goes on awakening more and more acts of faith in future grace. So let me close like this. Everybody who's just read the Bible a little bit knows that there are commands in the Bible other than believe. Lots of them. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Honor your father and mother. Keep the Sabbath holy. Or put to death the deeds of the body so that you may live. We know that the Christian life is made up of much warfare against sin in our lives and much striving and struggle to do what we ought to do against a fallen nature that so much wants just to watch television or play and play and play. So the question at the end here is, how do you think about all those commands, demands, in relation to this, a revealed righteousness. And the answer is not, let me say what it's not and then close with what it is. It's not to think like this, oh my God, I am not going to make it into God's favor. So I need to do these things to get right with God. And do these things to get forgiven. And do these things to get acquitted in the courtroom of heaven. And do these things to get justified. That's called legalism. And it is deadly. And every human is born depending on it. We must wean our children off of it with every fiber in our body. Rather... The answer is, when you hear a commandment of the Lord, 
you think like this. If my measure of warfare against my sin, if the measure of my success were the foundation of my acceptance with God, I am a goner. There is no hope for me. I will just despair. I will say, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, because I don't care if the gospel is true or not. I can't keep it, and there's no point in racking my brain to try. That's what the effect will be of legalism in the end. Rather, we say, because freely... God has given to me a gift of His own righteousness, not mine. And His is perfect and mine is imperfect. To be received by faith alone apart from works of the law. And because He has already acquitted me in the courtroom of heaven by faith. And because He has already forgiven me and cast all my sins behind His back and buried them in the deepest part of the sea. Therefore... I know He is for me this afternoon and He will help me and strengthen me. And all I want to do is cast myself on that help and insofar as He enables me, do what He calls me to do. That I might manifest the supremacy of His grace in my life and enjoy an ever-deepening companionship with the one on whom... I depend. And that's called the Christian life. The gospel saves believers by revealing to you every day that your security lies not in yourself, but in the righteousness of God given to you to be received by faith. And I tell you, folks, I've been at it for six weeks now, and I plead with you to get it. You need that every day. Not just at the beginning of your Christian life. Father in heaven, I am so thankful for that great truth. And I pray your blessing on your saints. And I ask, Lord, that you would bring us to be a mighty gospel people. Oh God, grant, I pray that we would share this good news this week, that we would spread it throughout the cities, that we would write letters about it and put it on the email. Lord, don't let us bury this light under a bushel, I pray. Bless those who struggle. Lord, help them. Help them to learn to live the gospel and so be saved. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You're dismissed.